Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute's second talk of the season. My name is Tishani Doshi. I'm Associate Professor of Practice, Literature, and Creative Writing at NYUAD. I would like to thank the Institute as well as Arab Crossroads Studies, the History and Literature and Creative Writing programs, as well as the Global Asia Research in- Initiative for co-sponsoring this event. It's an honor and privilege to introduce Pankaj Mishra to you today. Pankaj is the author of eight books of fiction and nonfiction. He has published literary and political essays widely and won numerous prizes. He is an intellectual who calls for transformative thinking of self and the world. A critic and chronicler who is able to see both the large and small, who looks to the past and future simultaneously. Someone who does not want to provide easy answers, but who encourages deep investigations into history, consciousness, and the imagination. I've followed Pankaj's work since his charming first book published in 1995, Butter Chicken in Ludhiana, Travels in Small Town India, followed by his novel, The Romantics, and his third book, An End to Suffering, which was described by the New York Times as an intellectual autobiography of the Buddha. It has been interesting to see his trajectory as a writer and thinker. Those early concerns about what happens to the marginalized and the dispossessed, what happens when societies are filled with untrammeled desire and consumption and hyper-individualism, Who controls the power of narrative and how does this cultural monopoly affect the rest of the world have expanded into his following four books, Temptations of the West, From the Ruins of Empire, A Great Clamor, and The Age of Anger. So many of Pankaj Mishra's concerns as a writer, capitalism, imperialism, colonialism, racism, the climate crisis, dominate our conversations today. He has consistently questioned the grand narrative of the West and worked to reverse that gaze. He challenges our assumptions of nationhood and identity. He is constantly seeking to reframe modernity and investigate the pathologies that have brought us to where we are. I cannot think of another public intellectual who can talk with ease about the rise of egocrats, the dangers of chamocracy, the crisis in modern masculinity, the perfection of Roger Federer's backhand, and the majesty in the writing of Mavis Gallant. But perhaps his most important quality is that he is a compassionate ethics and philosophy. His essays add complexity and texture to all our current debates, especially during this time of the pandemic. It feels auspicious somehow to hear Pankaj speak today about the end of the Western model when there will be a handover of power in the US. His most recent book, Bland Fanatics, Liberals, Race and Empire, 
a collection of 16 essays couldn't have been published at a more opportune moment. This is a writer and thinker we need for the times we are living through. Somebody who brings to the forefront the idea of solidarity. Someone who is asking, what can we do to open up new possibilities? So, welcome, Pankaj. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dishani. Uh, it's a great honor to be actually introduced by you, a writer that I've admired for you know, decades now. And, um, you know, really, thank you for such a warm, eloquent and um, generous um, introduction. Now, let's see whether I can match up to that. Um, I, um, some months ago during the lockdown, I was uh, looking at my bookshelves and, you know, I'm sitting in the study and um, a lot of books here are... Um, unread and they look back at me and torment me. And one of these books had a very appealing title, Radical Hope, Ethics in the Face of Cultural Devastation. So I brought it down from the shelf and started reading. It's a very short book. And I was very struck by how much it spoke to me, spoke to this moment, because what it describes um, is something we are all experiencing in different ways, which is conceptual loss. Let me, let me try and explain that a little bit. I mean, he's, the author, Jonathan Lear, starts with um, these uh, Native Americans who back in the 19th century, like many indigenous peoples around the world, were forced to move from a nomadic to a settled existence. And in the process, um, they lost many of their sources of livelihood, but also most importantly, they lost a connection with their intellectual, spiritual heritage. They, they lost the conceptual resources to understand their past and present. The problem for a Crow-Indian, Crow uh, Leah writes, wasn't just that my way of life has come to an end. The problem was that I no longer have the concepts with which to understand myself or the world. In other words, I have no idea what's going on. Now, that is a sentiment um, that I've heard often. Uh, I've often expressed it myself in, uh, in, in, in recent years, um, experiencing, you know, whole series of uh, political earthquakes, uh, disasters, uh, elections uh, of various authoritarian figures. But I think um, that intellectual incomprehension or the failure to understand what's going on is most widespread among people who were telling us for a very long time now, for nearly three decades, I think since the end of the Cold War in the early 90s, that the world actually is getting better all the time. The world is being knit together very efficiently, very peacefully by their guidelines for capitalism, democracy, technology, of course, um, Silicon Valley being the, being the great... Uh, contributor to democracy and, 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 and general peace. Uh, I'm sure many of you remember the claims that were being 
made for Twitter and Facebook just a, just a decade ago. Um, and I'm referring to people mostly in the Anglo-American intelligentsia, people in Britain and the United States, writers, intellectuals, journalists, a whole intelligentsia that was basically telling us that we should follow their guidelines for capitalism, for democracy, and the rest of us would also find ourselves enjoying the power and privilege that this white minority in Britain and America has enjoyed for a very long time. Uh, the leaders, United States and Britain, uh, and, and if you look at the rhetoric of many of their politicians, Barack Obama is a, is a, is a classic instance, um, where when he was elected, there was this expectation that we're all entering a post-racial age. And uh, as he himself wrote, uh, Obama wrote actually just a month before Donald Trump's election, that we're all embarking on a race for new frontiers and Americans are inspiring uh, the world. Of course, at one level, this narrative um, of a global journey to the promised land led by the United States and Britain, this narrative was always very implausible, uh, very hard to believe for, for most people outside these countries. Um, because if you cast your mind back to events of the last 20 years, just the main events, Think of the terrorist attacks on 9-11, then intensified globalization, at the same time, the rise of China happening together with a calamitously failed war on terror, then the financial crisis of 2008. If you think about all these events, it becomes clear that the world actually was moving into a completely different and new historical period. Now, of course, after nearly a year of, of, of the pandemic, um, it's, even, it's even clearer if the true test of uh, government, good government is its ability to produce a good, efficient administration, then of course the United States and Britain have failed uh, ruinously. Uh, both countries we know had weeks of warnings about the outbreak in China. Um, there were nations that had responded very early, South Korea, Taiwan. They had offered uh, a number of ideas and strategies through their own experience that we could have implemented, adapted. But you look at, you know, you think about what the leaders of Britain and the United States were saying back in February uh, and March, early March, about um, how they're going to deal with this pandemic. Uh, Trump saying, I think it's going to work out fine. On 3rd March, I remember that day, you know, the same day that the UK's scientific advisory group uh, said, please don't shake hands, please stop shaking hands. The UK Prime Minister goes to a hospital, which is actually treating coronavirus patients, and then tells the press afterwards, I shook hands with everybody, you'll be pleased to know. And I continue to shake hands. So, what you know, a year on, what we're looking at is a utter disaster, literally hundreds of thousands of avoidable deaths in both countries. And we're not even at the end of this process. Uh, I think 
I fear a, a period of greater devastation lies ahead. Tens of millions of people are likely to lose their sources of livelihood and dignity. Of course, you know, in order to deal with all this, we need faster scientific advances, technical advances. We need new modes of coordination, global public health, in international environmental agreements. There are so many things that we need to work on. But I think um, most importantly, we need to reconfigure the way we look at the world today. Not just the world today, but also the past. We need to understand that many of the ideas and assumptions that had been operative all these decades, whether about the, um, um, the, 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 the leadership of the United States or Britain, their role as teachers to the rest of the world, people who insisted that there was no moral or practical alternative to American-style democracy and capitalism, all these ideas and assumptions have become completely obsolete. I spoke earlier of conceptual loss. Um, I'd like to know for people who are insisting that there's no alternative to American-style politics and economy, how do they explain how China, for instance, a communist-ruled country, became central to global networks of trade and finance? There's also uh, more evidence of conceptual loss, more evidence of bewilderment when you look at the response to Black Lives Matter or the politicization of young people in, 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 in many parts of Britain and the United States. And also this new consciousness, which is very rapid and, and really very swift, a historical consciousness of how slavery and racial capitalism underpinned the wealth and power of the United States and Britain. Tishani mentioned earlier about you know, uh, uh, the, these, these themes of slavery and, and, and racial capitalism. And she was right in the sense that you know, many of us have been talking about these issues for a very long time. And finding ourselves up against ideological, intellectual orthodoxies that would simply not accept any kind of discussion or debate about these issues. You know, the, the simple idea that slavery and, and, and racial capitalism underpinned the wealth and power of the United States and Britain was denied for so many years. Now, of course, young people are out there discovering these things for themselves, talking to each other, making these ideas mainstream. So in many ways, what the earthquakes, the upheavals of our times have exposed is a devastating deficit of conceptual resources. And, you know, it, it is not going to be addressed by anything that happens with this new U.S. administration that is coming in today. Trump uh, is heading back to Mar-a-Lago in Florida as we speak. Um, 
But some signs of what we can expect, even after he's gone, were there a couple of weeks ago when those uh, Trump supporters assaulted the Capitol. Um, I think um, we are going to see a lot more of that. At the same time, we are also going to see a lot of blind faith, a lot of emotional and intellectual investment put in the idea that Joe Biden somehow is going to restore the old order. If you read uh, many of the mainstream publications of London and New York, whether it's the London Times or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times uh, or the Economist or the Financial Times, you'll find again and again, uh, well, certainly a lot of uh, complaints, laments about the Trump era, but also a lot of expectations that we are now, you know, past that era and now Biden is going to, you know, essentially take us back to where we were and, you know, get a, get a kind of, some kind of a reset. Um, on the whole, I mean, when you look at, when you consider these, these laments and these hopes, and they're mostly coming from an overwhelmingly white, male, middle-aged uh, group of people, and what they really bring to mind is something James Baldwin said, um, actually, as early as the 1960s. Again, in some ways, talking about uh, the loss of conceptual resources. Uh, and what Baldwin said was very strongly phrased, and I quote it, um, the white man's world, intellectually, morally, and spiritually, has a meaningless ring of a hollow drum and the odor of the smell of slow death. Now, everything I've said, I mean, you know, and what I'm basically pointing to is the urgent need for a new framework to understand the forces at play today and in recent decades. But I feel that it'll only really come about if you make a conscious attempt to interrogate and also discard the formative influences of many writers, intellectuals, and commentators over the age of 40. This is a really crucial uh, break-off point that. Um, there's, a, there's a writer many of you would be familiar with called Tony Jute, um, who was uh, born in 1948, a great um, social and cultural historian. In an interview, he once spoke of um, and I quote him, a pretty crappy generation he belonged to, which grew up in the 1960s in Western Europe or in America, in a world of no hard choices, either economic nor political. So the way Jude saw it was that many of his peers, they moved from these sort of leftist postures of the 60s and 70s into this business of material accumulation and personal security. And likewise, in their intellectual uh, 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 journey, they moved from leftism to thinking that, ah, there is really no alternative to neoliberalism. There is really no alternative to deregulation and privatization of the kind 
um, Ronald Reagan and Thatcher was trying to were, were, were starting to propagate in the in the in the 1980s, and this generation of Jews was also quick to internalize the belief when the Berlin Wall fell that liberal democracy and capitalism had scored a stunning victory. Now, Jude was speaking of you know people of his generation, but I think there is actually a younger generation uh, than his. And they have a similar worldview, and its members are actually, uh, you know, people who grew up in an even more complacent era, which is the end of the Cold War. And many of them are entrenched in very senior positions in magazines, newspapers, television channels, think tanks, university departments um, in in uh, in metropolitan Britain and America. And when they were growing up during the 90s, which was the peak triumphalist period, they simply assumed that American-style democracy and capitalism had more or less been fine-tuned at home and there was time to export it abroad. And that was only a matter of time before they were embraced by these authoritarian countries like China and Russia it was only a matter of time before, you know, India, which is uh, which was assumed to be, you know, a, a fully uh, democratic society, um, only a matter of time before India became a stakeholder in the Western international uh, liberal order. Now, of course, um, these fantasies of two Western generations, uh, we can see them very clearly. We can see more clearly the intellectual narcissism implicit in them. And once we actually start to look at them closely, I think uh, we can then also see the deeper structural changes of this very unfamiliar world that we are living in today. And these changes, I would argue, flow primarily from decolonization, the central event of the 20th century. Now, even, even you know, during the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, when the post-colonial world was in a very different shape altogether, even then it was clear that the future, the world's future is going to be decided by ideas, movements that happen in places that are geographically very remote from Western Europe and the United States, places that actually host the vast majority of the world's population. The Chinese Revolution, for instance, always seemed to hold greater consequences for the wider world uh, than, say, the Russian Revolution. And when um, Mao Zedong declared in 1949 that the Chinese people has stood up, after a century of humiliation by Western countries, even back then it seemed this was, you know, this is more than just boosterish rhetoric, because what it is inaugurating these words, um, they are inaugurating a very um, determined, um, obviously, you know, littered with calamities, but nevertheless, extremely successful pursuit of national wealth and power. So today, I think it's much easier to see today that everything important that has happened 
in the United States and to a certain extent in Britain, whether it's the election of Trump, white supremacist upsurge, extreme inequality, outsourcing of jobs, de-unionization, none of these things can be explained today without reference to the rise of China as a manufacturing giant and aggressively nationalist world power. So if you want to understand the contemporary world, it's not enough to you know, simply add, as we've been doing, the history of democratic India, a history of authoritarian China, uh, to these narratives of Western dominance and Western eminence, and say at some point, uh, these uh, trajectories of uh, India and China, they all converge onto uh, the Western narrative. I think it means to understand the contemporary world, I think it means abandoning the whole structure of preconceptions on which this parochial Anglo-American view has long been based. You know, the, 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 the sort of drums that Baldwin, uh, James Baldwin spoke of, uh, the nearly broken drums, but it is actually, you know, harder uh, than it seems to, to just retire them. Because the perceptions, the modes of thought and perceptions, the self-images that were developed by the Anglo-American intelligentsia are not only very pervasive, they are deeply tenacious. And they all, you know, obviously uh, were strengthened during the Cold War when uh, the so-called free world was up against uh, the communist uh, 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 order. Uh, led by the Soviet Union, also China. And there was a lot of, you know, uh, uh, stakes in this ideological clash, people saying, you know, Western-style democracy is a fraud. Um, and many people actually believe that. And in order to combat this notion, the anti-communist writers, commentators in the so-called free world consistently overestimated their own societies. They consistently saw in it more widespread and enduring material and intellectual uplift than could be supported by, by historical facts. I mean, in, in many ways, what many young people are today discovering is that, um, that behind the propaganda of freedom and democracy, there were these um, very ugly realities that they hadn't been taught about, they hadn't been told about, uh, whether it's about slavery, sla slavery or whether it's about uh, imperialism in the case of uh, 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 Britain. Um, and I think what also happened during the Cold War, uh, which is a very significant period for the strengthening of these, um, you know, what are, what are, you know, mainstream ideas of Anglo-American. Uh, one of the things that happened was that liberalism became the dominant, uh, uh, not only the dominant, as uh, a very important critic, Lionel Trilling, put it, not only the dominant, but even the sole intellectual tradition, um, which was very odd, um, you know, this kind of promotion for uh, liberalism, because before the Cold War, in the years leading up to the Second World War, there was this idea that liberalism is too 
complicit in the disasters of ruling classes in various parts of the world. Uh, liberals have become um, too unaware of how much they represent particular class interests, how much um, in the way they think about the world has been corrupted by their class interests. But nevertheless, as the Cold War intensified, liberalism came to be the idea that was set against the miserable realities of Soviet and Chinese communism. It was around that time that liberalism started to acquire a very prestigious intellectual ancestry, you know, with, with John Locke and Hobbes um, enlisted as ancestors. There's also a whole lot of discourse about the Enlightenment, uh, which we still see very much today, as how the Enlightenment is the source, the ultimate source of the free world's uniquely good, great privileges. Um, now, we know that the Enlightenment was questioned very severely in Europe itself from the late 19th century onwards. Nevertheless, in, in the last uh, half century or so, it has become a way of congratulating oneself that we belong to this wonderful, great tradition. Uh, I'm sure some of you are acquainted with the work of um, Steven Pinker, who has published uh, various door-stopping books, um, claiming that things are getting better all the time, and that really is the enlightenment that we should credit. And people who can't see that things are getting better all the time are simply too blinded or they're crazed leftist or too, too deluded by anti-enlightenment loathing to really see how things are getting better. Now, obviously, uh, that kind of narrative is not persuasive to many people today who want to know how it became possible for white supremacism, supremacism to become as important uh, as it has in recent years, how it became possible for white police officers to murder black people with the consent of a sitting US president. Uh, these uh, glowing accounts of the free world as a custodian of civilized values, of democracy, of liberalism, uh, heir to the enlightenment, and the nemesis of totalitarianism, they were not going to be of much help to people in the present, um, partly because these mythologies, these Cold War uh, mythologies of virtue suppress too many awkward facts. Uh, I mean, you know, to give you just one example, like these sort of enlightenment sages like Voltaire, who describe black people as animals with little or hardly any intelligence. Um, John Stuart Mill, um, who assumed that Indians were barbarians unfit for self-rule. But nevertheless, these facts, which, you know, obviously doesn't mean that we, sh we should stop reading these figures, but it certainly complicates their thought, complicates their influence, wants to make us interrogate the role of liberal political philosophy in the practice of imperialism. Once you take away these facts, then you're looking essentially at a feel-good narrative, um, how we all you know, came out of the Enlightenment and have become progressively smarter, more civilized. So it, there was that obsession with the Enlightenment, and then there was this obsession, fixation rather, with the crimes of Stalin and Mao Zedong and Hitler, 
Uh, again, I mean, all of this managing to obscure the very long centuries of global violence and dispossession that made two countries in particular, Britain and the United States, uniquely powerful and wealthy is a uh, very um, um, uh, astute philosopher called Lorna Finlayson, who uh, quite recently wrote that um, as surely as terrible crimes have been committed by socialist states, the history of liberal nations is the history of systematic acquisitive violence from the genocide of indigenous populations to slavery, to contemporary regime change and humanitarian intervention. This much is uncontroversial, even though it may not be thought relevant or polite perhaps to talk about it. So of course, who, who was going to talk about this? Not people who were inventing entire intellectual genealogies, uh, enlightenment, counter-enlightenment, romantic irrationalism, Islamic fascism, uh, genealogies invented to define the enemies of the liberal democratic West, to make the liberal democratic West look virtuous. And people who could talk about these subjects, um, the long-term victims, and therefore very close observers of the Enlightenment West and, and of the Enlightened West, those people were effectively silenced or marginalized. So the problem with so much of the discourse that emerged from these two countries in the last decades was not only you know, that the elites, their philosophies were corrupted by their class interests, but also that their outlook, the so-called liberal internationalist outlook, amounted in practice to either obliviousness to or contempt, reflexive contempt for other worldviews. You, you could just pretend that, um, you know, many uh, parts, many, many, a vast majority of the world's population um, simply does not exist. It was really, really, literally possible to pretend um, that all these many countries, all these many societies, they've had, they've had very few contributions to make, sometimes no contributions at all. I mean, in, in, in given, given how little they were mentioned, uh, there's a very good example um, I'd like to bring up of a, a philosopher who was much talked about, much celebrated in both England and the United States, uh, Isaiah Berlin who came to prominence after the Second World War, precisely when you had anti-colonial movements across the world starting to achieve their delayed victories, precisely at the time when civil rights movement in the United States intensified their long battle for essentially basic rights. You know, and we also know uh, that by the time Berlin started to become prominent, um, you've already had a huge archive of political thought developed in different non-white parts of the world. I mean, obviously, people who were degraded by racist Western empires had very different ideas about how to achieve 
liberty and justice, how to organize their society. So a range of figures from, you know, Tagore, who was a poet, um, Gandhi, Sun Yat-sen in China, Du Bois in, in, in America, uh, any, any number of figures you can name uh, from different parts of Asia, Africa, Latin America, Jose Marti, I'm forgetting, who all offered a very strong critique of Western political economic arrangements, but also alternative visions of human coexistence on a planet they recognized was very fragile. Of course, we know that in the post-colonial era, many countries in Asia and Africa started to flounder after liberating themselves from their white rulers. Uh, they had many, many problems. Uh, they were formally sovereign, but their sovereignty was radically curtailed by the Cold War and then economic new imperialism. Um, but, you know, this experience, this very fraught experience of failed modernization, state building, uh, then you had secessionist movements, militant insurgencies, you had dictators in many countries. All this provoked an even deeper intellectual engagement, you know, with what are the perennial problems of politics and society. So whether, you know, it's the work of the Egyptian economist Samir Amin, or the Indian uh, social psychologist Ashish Nandi, or the Moroccan feminist Fatima Mernisi, the Jamaican historian Orlando Patterson, I mean, any number of people I could name, all, their work is really exemplary in the way it overturns assumptions derived from a history of Western exceptionalism. But their voices were rarely heard in the Western mainstream. So there was very little challenge until very recently to the presumption that the so-called liberal democratic political institutions of Britain and the United States can be disentangled and assessed separately, separately from such grossly illiberal practices as slavery and imperialism. Now, Asai Berlin, himself a great uh, philosopher of liberalism, ignored its complicated history and barely acknowledged any non-Western intellectual and uh, political tradition. I mean, he's very famous for his uh, essay, Two Concepts of Liberty um, in 1958. This is a year after um, Little Rock's Central High School, the images of forced integration are circulating globally. Uh, this is also a peak year of decolonization, but Berlin overlooks all these quests for collective and individual liberty launched by um, non-white peoples and nations. I mean, simply assuming like John Stuart Mill, like many philosophers before him, that really it's only the freedom of the propertied, already free propertied white male mattered. This you know, notion that uh, essentially Western political institutions are fundamentally oriented to delivering liberty and justice. Now, you know, there's a lot of questioning of that idea, but you can also see it embraced by John Rawls, uh, probably the most influential book of political, uh, author of the most influential book of political philosophy in the late uh, 20th century, A Theory of Justice. 
Well, the strange thing is that these very parochial frameworks of thought that came from members of a credentialed uh, Western intelligentsia became hegemonic inside and outside academia, just as the United States and Britain entered the, this sort of long period of decline in the 1970s. So essentially a small group of white, uh, mostly male, mostly male, political philosophers working at a handful of elite institutions in the United States and Britain became long after, remained long after decolonization, the heralds and prophets of modernity, theorizing at length about global justice, human rights, you name it, you know, while dis disregarding the experiences that bound and still bind the colonizers to the colonized, the settlers to the indigenous peoples, and the free to the enslaved. But, you know, what mattered was a deep facility for people entering academia with their historically innocent abstractions. And, and that's how you moved uh, ahead in uh, academia. So the consequence was that a whole past of conquest and domination and its political legacy, which we see today, was erased. Uh, you know, what is being recovered uh, by efforts like the New York Times' 1619 project. You know, however belatedly or however imperfect this project might be, at least, you know, it's making, making an attempt because the worldview that it is challenging was really disconnected from both history and contemporary reality. It was really almost a kind of uh, propaganda. Now, you know, coming to the last uh, bit of my talk, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, what is it that we can actually do uh, to really deal with what is essentially, um, you know, ghosts, uh, various ghosts, liberalism, democracy, the free world. Uh, how do we get rid of them and, and um, you know, start again intellectually? I mean, I think, part, I mean, it's very clear that the kind of intellectual narcissism which credited uh, moral virtue and political wisdom to countries like India, simply because India appeared to conform to some Anglo-American notion of democracy and capitalism, I think it's very clear those notions will have to be abandoned. Um, we definitely need to pay more attention, especially after the pandemic, to the specific historical experiences and political traditions of Germany, Japan, South Korea, countries that were once described and dismissed as authoritarian, protectionist. We have to understand the ways they have mitigated the suffering caused by both um, man-made change and sudden calamity. Um, of course, you know, post-pandemic, the idea of building state capacity, which is alien to Britain and the United States today uh, and accounts for much of their disasters, that idea will have to be grappled with because COVID really has exposed the world's greatest democracies, uh, whether India, Britain or United States, as victims of prolonged self-harm. Um, at the same time, countries with strong state capacity have been far more successful at 
containing its spread. And they also look better equipped to cope with the social and economic fallout. How else can we also escape this intellectually uh, enfeebled milieu where the self-interests and self-perceptions of privileged white men are passed off as global thinking, world philosophy, world history are essentially Western in nature and, and, and origin. Of course, I mean, an essential task here would be to address, and um, you know, your university is actually extremely well placed, to address the staggering, and they're staggering when you think about it, the staggering imbalances of intellectual life. To give you an instance, newspaper columnists in India, China, Egypt, or the UAE is very unlikely to be recognized as an authority on global affairs unless he or she can demonstrate some basic knowledge of Euro-American political traditions or intellectual traditions. Most Western scholars, let alone newspaper columnists, do not have even a passing acquaintance with Indian, Chinese, African, and Arab history and thought. But, you know, adding a few unfamiliar names to the curriculum, uh, which is something already, by the way, resisted, fiercely resisted by the conservative rights in Britain and America. I know, I'm not sure whether it's going to really truly advance global thinking. It might advance the corporate aims of, you know, diversity and inclusivity, something more radical will still be required to avoid total conceptual loss, which is the interrogation of an intellectual tradition that has actually distorted our sense of reality. And we'll have to also relearn uh, a lot of world history with the recognition that fundamental assumptions about the inferiority of non-white peoples have tainted much previous knowledge and analysis. Now, this may all seem like a very tall order, but the alternative is really uh, to keep banging uh, the same old um, drum that Baldwin spoke about, even as it falls apart. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Pankaj. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes, okay. I can. Thank Go you. Back. Thank you. Uh, we have a lot of questions that have already come in. So I think oh, we well. have some time to, to just have a conversation. And I would urge people putting their questions in to be specific and um, as, as uh, pointed as possible. Um, I'm going to start with this one, uh, Pankaj, as a writer, do you reflect on your positionality in writing about topics like caste or the crisis in Kashmir? And are you mindful of speaking for others, savior complex? Oh, um, I think, you know, when I first started to write about Kashmir, that's a very good question. Um, Kashmiris were more or less invisible in the Indian press, uh, not to mention in the international media. This was in the late 1990s. So whether you liked it or not, 
uh, you felt you had a sense of responsibility to articulate the great suffering and trauma that many Kashmiris underwent and were completely unable to express, to convey to a broader audience. So in you know, some ways, you end up representing a people, you, speak, you end up speaking on your behalf, even though it is a presumptuous act. Over time, as more and more Kashmiri writers have emerged, journalists, novelists, you know, there's so much talent in, uh, in Kashmir, and we've seen more and more of it in, uh, in the last two decades. I think, you know, it's important to step back and let people speak for themselves. But sometimes, you know, there are communities who have been deprived of participation in the, in the public sphere. And um, that's when, you know, you're required to make interventions. Okay. Um, this is a question about, are there any non-authoritarian political movements or hopeful strands of thought in the West or in the East? Or will this struggle for fascist, communist-style domination of society by governments, police authorities, spying intelligence, uh, be the new norm? You know, um, I think there's going to be, a, obviously, um, a very intense struggle in the years to come between um, the forces that um, just been described. And I think people belonging to a generation that feels very short-charged, uh, very, um, in a way, let down by previous generations. Uh, and I'm speaking you know, primarily of people now in their late teens, 20s, early 30s, who are politicized like no other generation I've seen previously. And they have not yet organized themselves into movements or they haven't manifested their strength in political parties. They're far too young for that. And also, I think, you know, Political organization doesn't quite happen in the same way it used to. But nevertheless, I think the energy and the determination of many of these young people, you know, many of have now spent a whole year cooped up inside their homes, uh, looking at the shambles that governments have, have made of everything. And I don't think this experience is going to just fade away. It's going to politicize this generation and I think this generation will be the backbone of any positive political formation that we might see in the next in the next decade or so. I feel pretty confident of that today. Um, here's a question about language. Um, how do you think we could achieve a truly global knowledge production and dissemination at universities all over the world? How much of an opportunity and obstacle is the English language? as a lingua franca in this context, what are tangible steps that institutions can take in this regard? Well, I mean, definitely, you know, language uh, learning uh, and moving away from English because, you know, at one level, it's a very convenient language. It's a language of globalization, all kinds of deal, transactions, communications happen in it. But at the same time, intellectually, it's extremely, you know, constricting. Um, and what it means is that we cannot explore large tracts of 
human experience, essentially. You know, you, we, we cannot really understand so much about India. We know that uh, unless you know a local language or, or, or of a particular region. And likewise, you know, we have China today, a powerful country, and how little we know about its philosophical tradition and its political tradition. I mean, I've been learning Spanish recently, and I feel like a whole new world is opening up before my eyes. Uh, it's both exciting, both thrilling, and I know that despite all my reading of Spanish writers and, and, and philosophers available in English, this is a world that I've simply not encountered before. So yes, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think that, that, that would be the one way to go forward. Um, a couple of related questions here about cancel culture. Um, I question here. I would be curious to get your take on the notions of cancel culture being woke or being woke in the current Anglo-American discourse. Are those concepts similar to the notion of political correctness, political strategies of the right, conservative spectrum, and if so, how can they uh, be prevented from resonating among large parts of the population? It's a very important question because I think, you know, uh, one reason why these ideas become dominant and start to circulate is because of the enormous cultural heft that the political right has in Anglo-America today. So when you examine uh, the notion of cancel culture, it turns out that it reflects the anxiety of a very powerful, already very powerful and long privileged elite to speak which has spoken, which has spoken uninterruptedly without challenge for a very long time. And now it finds itself challenged, uh, questioned by all kinds of people, whether on social media or indeed within, you know, on university campuses, and feels that their right to be wrong, sometimes all the time, is being questioned, is being challenged. So this hysteria about cancel culture, which makes it seem like Cancel culture is something real, something genuine. Of course, there are, you know, people all the time being fired unfairly for all kinds of reasons. You know, cancel culture in some ways has always been with us. But this notion of cancel culture, which essentially, you know, confines the perpetrators of cancel culture to, you know, particular ethnic racial groups uh, or, or indeed particular genders, um, this is very insidious. Um, and I think... The reason why it's been so successfully branded and spread and used as a way to mock people who are trying to change the discourse, you know, you call them woke, you call them politically correct. Uh, these are ways to essentially to delegitimize uh, all kinds of important intellectual and moral discourses that we, that we, that we need right now. Because that is a, you know, that is a tactic I was talking about earlier in my talk, um, about, you know, the orthodoxies are so entrenched and now they're being challenged and there is this sort of reaction um, that essentially this is all aimed at bringing us down unfairly and stigmatizing us and cancelling us. Gosh, the questions are coming thick and fast now, so um, I'm going to have to read quickly. Is there a particular political philosophy that stands out to you as a desirable alternative to liberalism in the West? I think, you know, uh, the problem really begins with this kind of prescription, you know, uh, this, this, this sort of notion that there is something out there which has already been, in a way, tried and tested, and we simply have to adopt it to our purposes, and then things will work out fine. 
I feel like this may be at the bottom, this may be the source of the problem that many of us are experiencing today, which is, you know, you, you adopt ideas that are actually fundamentally unsuited to you. Don't wait for ideas to emerge out of a real engagement with the world, you know, real engagement with your local situation, with your neighborhood, with your region, with your country. Um, you simply adopt these notions from elsewhere and think, ah, oh, they have worked out somewhere else. They will work out here. It turns out that what you knew about them working out elsewhere was mostly wrong uh, and that that was actually a kind of propaganda. So I think uh, we need to find ideas really in many ways out of an out of a particular experience and not just kind of adopt them. I and mean, of course, you know, there are a whole range of philosophies and, and political systems and economic systems on, on display there. But, you know, things will have to emerge out of our own particular histories and, and traditions and engagements. Are you concerned that your pessimism about universal human rights and the democratic model is fundamentally discouraging movements such as the Tunisian revolution that have been successful? Are they somehow sellouts by embracing a democratic Islam? Also, are you concerned that some of your positions play into the propaganda of states oppressing human rights? Well, I think the problem is that once you have a shallow discourse about uh, democracy and capitalism, then uh, authoritarian regimes are going to use that hypocritical and shallow discourse to shore up their own legitimacy. You know, this is something that is happening all the time. And we see that today with, with, uh, with, with China and Russia. Uh, the important thing for all of us who actually genuinely born, wish to advance uh, democracy in our respective societies, the spirit of egalitarianism, uh, you know, fair social economic arrangements, is that we have to separate them from this particular discourse which has tainted these ideas for so many people. That is, a, that, is a big, that is a big challenge. And this is what I mean, you know, when I talk about ideas, experience emerging out of a particular experience, rather than coming back to a place like India or Indonesia and saying, I picked up these ideas about democracy, you know, uh, and, and while I was living in the West, and, you know, this is the way to implement those ideas. I mean, you know, many of these countries have their own traditions of democracy. Have you thought about those? Have you looked into those? So I feel like we need to, at this point, start to separate what we want from discredited, delegitimized ideologies out there. Let Britain and the United States and China and Russia fight it out among themselves. You know, uh, uh, one claiming to be democratic, the other uh, accusing uh, them of being hypocritical. We have to really separate these discourses from, from this kind of sterile um, and, and, and pointless discussion. Um, some questions here about asking you to expand a bit on the concept of the West in your lecture. You've referred to the UK and the US. Someone else is talking about Greek. Uh, this is an earlier question. Uh, so could you elaborate a bit about um, the commonalities and differences between those two countries and other countries on the European continent? Do you see hope for their models or are these inextricably connected to the end of the Western model? No, I think, uh, you know, the important thing is that the model that has been hegemonic uh, 
within the so-called West, and uh, by the way, I think the West has now become a very incoherent entity. So I think we need to actually now look at it. We'll look at what constitutes the West. Um, is it Germany? Is it uh, the leader of Europe? Is it uh, the United States? Um, is it uh, it's definitely not Britain today? Um, but I think, you know, once you start sort of breaking it down, once you start looking at particular national experiences, uh, whether of, you know, building the welfare states in, in Germany from the late 19th century onwards, which is very different from what happened in uh, Britain and the United States at that time, uh, when you start looking at uh, the use of um, protectionist uh, policies in Germany, then you're looking at a completely different conception of how society, societies can prosper. So I feel like once you start looking at these, I mean, you know, what we are essentially still dealing with when we talk about the West are ideologies of the Cold War, which presented the West as this coherent entity. What I'm arguing is that let's break it down. You know, let's see through the constructed nature of this concept, of this entity, and look at Britain and the United States in particular. You know, how little does Spain, for instance, have in common historically, their trajectory with Britain and the United States? I mean, Spain lost its empire uh, a long time ago, and then whatever it had was really, you know, very, very small. Portugal, another, another example. Um, and of course, you know, Italy. Uh, so all these countries, when you actually, you know, take them out of this, Cold War construction uh, will reveal a very different historical trajectory and 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 development. I mean, that's you know one of the tasks ahead is to break free of this Cold War discourse. You know, when when I hear the words the West spoken or you know when I uh, talk about these, uh, I mean, I often use it as a shorthand myself. But what I really am referring to are the dominant ideologies of Britain and the United States. And they have been absolutely dominant even within Western Europe and, 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 and the American continent. So um, it's not, you know, it's not uh, the German uh, notion of state building that, you know, people are following in, in India or Indonesia. I mean, it's the Reagan and the Thatcher ideologies of uh, capitalism, of, of privatization, or unleashing the entrepreneur, those are the ideologies that are truly, truly universal. But once you start looking at other countries, then other histories will, will come into view. Um, this is a question about India. Do you think the interrogation of an intellectual order that you speak of at a global scale needs to be replicated for the intellectual hegemony of the upper caste knowledge production in India. How do you read the caste dynamics of narratives of and in India as a whole? I think one of the very important steps forward in that direction would be to say, or would be to demonstrate that much of the discourse about India is an upper caste discourse. Uh, the, uh, the discourse about India as a democracy India as a country that is increasingly converging with various Western models of democracy and capitalism. Um, it is a kind of upper caste uh, claim, a claim for dignity, for higher status, for recognition in the, in the eyes of the white rulers of the world. 
And what it does is systematically ignore the many realities of India, which, you know, some of the most you know, prominent amongst them is the reality, the horrible reality of caste. And the fact that, you know, all of us are infected with this ugly, inegalitarian ideology. I don't exclude myself, you know, from this, from this, uh, from this indictment, uh, by the way, because I feel like all of us upper caste Indians have been shaped in ways that we've really not begun to understand. And so much of our uh, outlook today is shaped by the privileges inherited with our membership of, uh, of, of, of the upper castes. I mean, likewise with, you know, the same argument that I make of uh, the elites, the ruling classes of Britain and America, um, I think the same arguments can be and should be extended to the Indian intelligentsia. What are opportunities and limits for non-Western countries to intervene and break into the globally hegemonic discourse in the face of what is often political, military, economic power asymmetries? What are other potential players in this endeavor? Social movements, social media, NGOs, the media, etc. I think it's actually hugely important to have independent uh, platforms for debate and discussion. It could start at the universities, but it cannot remain confined to universities in the global south. There need to be journals of opinion, there need to be periodicals. Uh, the trouble is many of these institutions, organizations come up, but they, then they become closely affiliated with uh, regional or national power holders, uh, either you know, ruling, ruling uh, either particular regimes or people close to the close to the regime. So to this day, we have no global alternative to the New York Times. That remains for people around the world, uh, for many educated people around the world who, who uh, work in English, the primary source of, of, of news. But, you know, the New York Times is, is an, an incredibly American newspaper. It reflects and propagates an American worldview. And I think, you know, many people, many readers do not realize that. And they really do think of it as a fount of objectivity. So I'm not saying that, you know, anything that emerges in response to it would then become an objective forum, but I think it would be a place ideally for different ideas, different ways of looking at the world, not just through an, an American lens. Mm -hmm. Would you say that liberals framing themselves as opposition, even though they are themselves power holders, and that their opposition doesn't begin to challenge the neoliberal paradigm is exactly what fuels American capitalist realism? Um, that's a very good question. I mean, I think, um, you know, um, this is going to be very interesting in the next few years um, where I think a lot of, you know, careers are going to be made in this particular racket of posing as a great uh, fighter of the resistance to Donald Trump and being successful in that endeavor and, and you know, uh, in, in, in a way that leaves untouched, uh, unaffected, all your previous ideas and assumptions. You're just kind of longing to 
restore them, longing to make whole the world that was shattered by the election of Trump. And the underlying causes of that, because, you know, in the end, Trump was a symptom of a much bigger problem. The symptom has gone away, but the problem persists. Um, and the problem is of inequality, a state that doesn't function. I mean, you know, there's so many, so many, so many problems. Um, Trump was merely a symptom of that. But I think he affronted, he uh, was a great source of pain for many liberals simply because of his, the crudity of his style. Uh, George W. Bush, in many ways, caused a lot more damage than Donald Trump to various norms, to various democratic norms. He's the man who legalized torture, but we don't think of him in the same way we think of Trump. Is because liberal angst did not extend to him so much or was not so aggravated by the way he spoke or the way he moved uh, by his personal life for that matter. So I feel like um, uh, with the, just as the arrival of Barack Obama offered an opportunity for many liberals to redeem and to you know, renovate their self-image, I feel like the departure of Trump is also going to offer them a similar um, opportunity. Um, where is Egypt's place in this new world order in your Well, you know, I think um, it's obviously one of the great um, post-colonial projects, um, you know, right from the, right from the very beginning. Um, many of us are old enough to remember the days of um, solidarity between countries like India and Egypt and the exchange between the two, the continuous travel and the cultural exchanges. Um, and so too, you know, someone of my generation, it feels, I've been there many times, it feels very much, I feel very much at home there. Um, and very much in, 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 in touch with events there through friends and also affected by uh, its tragedies and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's suffering in a, in, a, in a very direct way. So I think the last few years have been very particularly painful in this regard. But, you know, having said that, I still feel that there is so much potential, that there's so much energy there and there's so much talent in that country that it's very hard. It's going to be very hard to keep it down in the way it has been. Uh, and that, you know, we will, we will probably see um, another eruption of that kind of energy in the in the in the years to come. Okay, a question about Christianity. Would you classify Christianity very much attacked in the West as part of the Western model? Christianity has had quite a global outreach and persevered even as the colonial imperial systems that propagated it in the East, Far East, Africa, and Americas collapsed. Yet Christianity stayed and is cherished by the emancipated ex-colonized people. How would you explain its universal appeal across space and time? I think, you know, uh, it's the most important uh, religious and philosophical tradition in many ways uh, because of its global reach. Um, like with many of these other figures and philosophies that we've discussed, you know, whether it's liberalism uh, or, or, you know, whether it's John Stuart Mill or um, Berlin, people should not be dismissed or disparaged simply because at different points in their lives um, they have said something 
which today we find offensive, um, or if they've been part of some movement or something, which we now find ugly. So to think of Christianity as a light to, which it was in many, many, many cases, to Western imperialism, um, and indeed to practices such as the Inquisition, would really, in many ways, be a great disservice uh, because I think what Christianity has given to the world is this extraordinary idea of equality. Equality originally before the eyes of God, and then equality as something that you know one should strive towards in our respective societies. So, you know, I, I, I really think a whole left tradition in the West and elsewhere would have been impossible without this inheritance of Christianity, this, this, this notion of uh, equality. And it's very moving. I mean, the story of Jesus um, and his struggles in that regard uh, and, his, and, his, and his, you know, the, the reported uh, sayings of his, um, I think uh, that is an incredible heritage of, of, of humanity. And that remains intact, uh, and you can see its uh, reflection when the Pope today becomes one of the few people to openly criticize our existing uh, political arrangements, our economic arrangements, when he criticizes the way many societies work today, our habits of consumption, um, and you know, at the same time tries to move to the church in a more liberal direction. So I think the energies of Christianity are far from being exhausted, and that is evident in the way it still continues to spread around the world. Okay, um, maybe just a few more questions. Pankaj, do you have the energy? For oh, yes. Yeah, a couple more. Yeah. Okay. Um, what is the role that you envision China will have in this new world order? You mentioned its enormous rise as a center of trade and capitalist player. Do you think it will be a model that, that others will seek to emulate? And how about its soft power potential when compared to the Western model? I think China is way behind in, in uh, all of these um, areas. It has never really seriously tried to project soft power. You know, having Confucius Institutes uh, is not going to, um, you know, get it, the, the power it would want for itself. Um, and also, you know, I think because it's surrounded by mostly adversaries, not friends, uh, if you look at the map of, of, of the world that China's part of, um, you, you see, you know, just how it doesn't really have that many friends, doesn't have that many allies. So I think it's very unlikely that China is ever going to be as powerful and dominant as the United States, and then before the United States, Britain was. Um, it's going to have a very different destiny altogether. And it will be interesting to watch, I think, for, uh, for, for, for most of us. But we're really simply not looking at another superpower that replaces um, a previous uh, and exhausted superpower. OK. Um, there is a question here. Oh, I've heard a noise. Somebody. Uh, there is a question here asking about why are you fascinated by Voltaire so much and Rousseau? How conflicted do you feel? What about space that are outside of the ontological meaning? So maybe uh, 
I've I've truncated the question. So maybe talk about your fascination with Voltaire and Rousseau. Um, I was I was fascinated. Uh, I think I should clarify. Um, certainly um, for a while, no longer. The fascination was partly, you know, due to the fact that I was trying to figure out uh, while writing Age of Anger, uh, a larger framework for my idea, ideas and thoughts uh, for the struggles that I wanted to portray in my book. And the two of them, rivals, intellectual adversaries, uh, offered uh, many interesting notions that I could work with, you know, one person being an advocate of a commercial society, of consumption, of international trade. The other one warning against the temptations of that society and warning that individuals or individual souls are going to be corrupted by this whole process of wanting to be successful and prosperous and famous and, 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 and recognized. So both of them offered very compelling visions of the world and right at the start of the modern era. Uh, and I think in many ways, you know, many developments since then can be mapped onto their ideas, their fears and their fantasies and their desires. Um, so that's that's why they're so important and so so crucial in, in many ways as you know people to kind of stage these conflicting um, uh, visions of the world and the conflict, uh, the, the the sort of larger conflicts that were you know still to come to, to be able to actually in, in many ways anticipate those conflicts. Okay. Um, so I think we'll end with one final question, Pankaj. I just want to thank you again for your time and for generously answering these questions coming from all corners. Um, and, um, and, and, and very sad that we couldn't have you with us in person. Um, I think I'd like to ask you, you know, Arnti Roy wrote an essay, The Pandemic is the Portal, talking about how pandemic is um, is an opportunity about how we sort of emerge from this and how is it going to be and uh, the word pessimism has come up a few times in the questions and in, in articles and reviews and I'm sure that you've been called that and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether you could speak a little bit as to how you think uh, we are going to emerge from this um, and whether uh, there is any kind of hope or anything that we can cling to that we call hope, um, aside from the obviously failing things that, that you've mentioned? Um, that's, a very, that's a very important question. I mean, I think you mentioned something in your introduction, um, something I've written. I think it was the last sentence of Age of Anger about, you know, transformative relationship or transforming the self and the world. And when I wrote it, it seemed... Um, incredibly utopian and, you know, incredibly optimistic that any such reckoning uh, uh, could happen, that as, a, as human beings living in this very traumatic era, we were even capable of such a, such a reckoning. Well, it turns out that the last year has forced many of us into that kind of reckoning with ourselves, uh, with the world that we live in, uh, as I said, you know, young people have been particularly rapidly politicized. By politicized, I mean simply com coming into an awareness of injustice, of inequality, 
uh, as it exists and has existed. And many of us who weren't paying too much attention to these issues, uh, who were simply, you know, kind of living their lives, have become much, much more aware um, that these ugly, nasty realities exist. And they destroy human lives all the time as we speak. Um, so the awareness of that and also the more guilt-laden, painful awareness that we are in many ways complicit in that suffering, that in the way we live, in the way we consume, in the way we monopolize uh, social capital, cultural capital, not to mention real capital, um, has created this, this, this very unjust world. Um, so, you know, in many ways, the, the pandemic, uh, Anandati Roy, is right, has been, although you know, one you, you wish there could have been a different way of reckoning with these things, but the sheer scale of this calamity has forced many of us uh, into this examination. And I feel, you know, I, I, I remain more, I, I am actually now more hopeful uh, than I was, say, a year ago, because I feel that I think this experience for many people would be formative, it would be deep, and it would shape many of their ideas and desires to change the world. And I feel like I don't think we've had a generation as committed as that for decades now. So, in other words, interesting times ahead. Okay, uh, thank you everyone for tuning in for your questions and thank you again, Pankaj. Um, wonderful to hear you, wonderful to see you. Take care of yourself until we meet again. Okay. Thank you so much, Tashani. That was great. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.